Hi, I'm Tracy Sheffield, and I spend my time doing several things. I work as a consultant in the veterinary industry. I work as a business consultant because, as we all know, veterinarians are just terrific doctors, but they may not be that interested in looking at a balance sheet or dealing with HR issues. So I provide them support in that area. And I also do that as well, speaking at um, conferences around the country. I do spend some time working as a practice administrator in what I call my home practice. And so I mostly take care of the financials there. And then I also dabble a little bit in um, acting theater. I have to say, I probably got the bug for acting in high school. I was very fortunate uh, in high school. I lived in Eugene, Oregon, and my mother worked at the University of Oregon. And my first introduction to big time Hollywood was a film crew had come to the University of Oregon wanting to know if they could film on campus. And after much discussion, they decided that yes, the film crew could, fil uh, could film there. And as long as the university was not mentioned anywhere in the production, they could film there. And not in the credits anywhere. And so my mother was the liaison between the film company and the university. So I got to, after high school, I would walk up to the campus and watch them film the movie. So I got to be there while they filmed several iconic scenes of the movie Animal House. So that was my introduction to Hollywood. So I have been in and out of some commercials. I've done little theater um, and some extra work and a few speaking speaking jobs. So that's just a sideline that's a lot of fun. Wait, can I ask you, so how old were you when that happened? At the oh, university? my gosh. <laughs> I was 18 years old when that happened. Okay, because I was picturing like, oh, you're a little, I don't know, some, I'm just like, uh, you're kind of coming along with your mom. And say, oh, she's like, you know, seven years old and she's no, no, weird. No. okay. You were 18 and in full, fully functioning human being. At that I was, well, that's debatable, <laughs> but certainly, um, old enough to go, Oh my gosh, that's John Belushi standing right there. And I'm right over here. And I got to watch them film the food fight scene and the scene where they take the horse up the steps. I got to visit with Tim Matheson and John Belushi on set. It was just wonderful to be 18 and, be exposed to all of that. What job did your mom have there specifically that she was the one who wound up liaising with the, with she, the entire her, production crew? At, at that time, her title was director of public relations. Okay. Um, and when they came, do you know, and maybe this is too long ago, but actually if you're 18, maybe you do know, you know, you said, Hey, they came to an agreement that said you can film here, but we don't want our signs up and we don't want the thing mentioned in your credits, but you're welcome to film here. Was it that particular movie or is their general take, unless it's going to be actually affiliated with the university? Absolutely not. You can't have it in your, it's, in your it, movie. It, my, my understanding. And so this may, this may need to, um, you know, subject to edit, but <laughs> my memory says what happened yeah. is the film crew asked multiple other universities to film and they all turned the film crew down. At that time, the president of uh, the University of Oregon had been, um, prior to being at the University of Oregon, it's my understanding, he was at Stanford. And when he was at Stanford, a film crew came and wanted to do some filming on campus. And they read the script and they turned it down, feeling that it had no you know, worth or merit was not going to be any kind of significant film. And right. it's my understanding that the film that Stanford turned down was The Graduate. <laughs> no redeeming value. What? Right, yeah. right. So that he didn't want that mistake to be made again. So he gave my mother the script to read. And when she'd finished reading it, he asked her, what do you think? She said, it's funny but it's raunchy. Remember, this was 1978. Yeah, it's yeah. It's funny, but it's raunchy. So that was the decision that they came to. Like, let's not pass on the filming here, but just depending on how the public reception of this movie might be, let's just make sure we're not, you know, labeled all over the place. So when you watch the movie, there is nothing, and there's nothing in the credits to indicate that filming took place at the University of Oregon. Now, do you know, I don't, did you, 
did you go to University of Oregon? And once the film was out, do people like there talk about it at all? Like there's this old building or this old building? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's still it is still discussed. Now, first off, we have to explain that I went to Oregon State. Okay. That's the Beavers. Mother worked at the University of Oregon and both my siblings went there. So they are all ducks. I'm a beaver. This is a very touchy subject here uh, for anyone who uh, is familiar with uh, the West Coast. So, but um, why didn't you, your mom probably got that massive either free education or massive tuition break. Why did you decide to buck the school trend <laughs> and go to the other school? Go to the other school. Well, there was no tuition break at the, oh. back at the time, but at that time, tuition was not a, a horrible, the horrible nightmare that it is, that it is now. Um, but always having an interest in animals, horses in particular, uh, and I don't even think I had a chance to mention at the top of the broadcast, I'm currently the president of the Texas Thoroughbred Association. Um, the animal science program at Oregon State is what drew me there. Okay, that okay. now that, that makes more sense. Was there, given the fact, were your sisters younger or older than you? I have an older brother and a younger okay. sister. Okay, older brother. And they both went to the school your mom worked at. Yes, yes. Was it at all? I know they had that program over there. Are they very geographic? Like how far, if you grew up there at that one university, how far did you have to go to get to the other, to get to Oregon State? 40 miles. Okay. So they're very <laughs> close together. They are very close together. You can be, you can get from one to the other in probably just under an hour. So you went there for animal stuff, but obviously you were interested in this movie that was being filmed at the time throughout elementary, middle, high school. Did you have an interest all the way through in either acting or literature or stagecraft or what did, what did you do in school before, before college? Um, I did have a lot of interest and was very involved with the theater department, theater department at South Eugene high school. So we, I was uh, in several productions and, helped with the scenes and the sets and um, had small parts in several productions and just thought it was a lot of fun. Just really, really enjoyed it. So I've always enjoyed it. Um, it must, it must be a family thing because my, my mother also enjoyed doing a little theater. And since I have lived in Wimberley, we have a little theater group, the Wimberley players, and I have periodically performed with them and there's just nothing as much fun as live theater, particularly when things go wrong. It's really, really interesting. And you was, just have to figure out a way to make the scene happen when things go wrong. Was it enough of a draw at the time where you were ever torn between, oh, I'm kind of into the animal in the, in the science part, but this art thing also draws me. Did you ever, career-wise, did you ever think maybe I want to push harder on the art instead of the science? No, not career-wise, but it's always been a thing. I've always enjoyed it, and whenever there's been an opportunity, um, I have I have taken it. I have grabbed it. So the whole reason I wanted to talk to you about this was I I was going to ask you. You know, you you led off with a, a bit of your current bio, which is that you work in the veterinary medical field, doing the stuff that veterinarians aren't the best at. So you help them with stuff that they're not the best at. But then you mentioned, I think it like in a little toss off thing in an email. Oh, I was in some TV spotter and I had some acting part. I'm like, what? So how did this thing come to be? Was it local right here in your town? How did it come to be? Or did you have to go somewhere for it? What happened? Well, it was an interesting series of events. Okay. Um, I, um, and it ties into my, um, my horse background. Oh. And so um, what happened is a film company was filming a horse sale scene and it was for a, a television show. Uh, it's on, I think it's on HBO plus it's Walker part of the Walker, Texas Ranger story. Okay. And so they were filming a horse sale scene and they needed a very particular bit of expertise for that scene and it they needed what's called a pedigree reader and when you go to a horse sale you have the auctioneer and then you have a pedigree reader and the job of the pedigree reader is to read the pedigree and uh it's twofold really is to uh -huh. let the buying public know which horse 
is in the arena that they are bidding on. So they're okay. very clear that it, this horse is the offspring of these of these parents and then let them know the achievements of the family tree so they can have an idea as to the qualities that this horse might possess. Okay. My first question is why can't, if the auctioneer has the mic already, how come the auctioneer can't do this? He can, but that is puts a lot on his plate while he's getting ready to, he's got his job to prepare you know, what he is going, how he's going to open the auction on this animal. So I keep the pedigree reader does the job of introducing the horse also gives the auctioneer a chance to catch his breath. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. He did pretty frantic during the auctioning. So I guess I don't understand that. So, and that's how they chose to do it for this was to have a pedigree reader, but you have to know how to do it, what to say, and how the animal um, is best presented. So um, they didn't have a script written for us. The director told um, the auctioneer and I to just simply say what you would say. (laughs) Okay, it's very (laughs) nonspecific. Yeah, because they didn't really know how to write it because it is a very niche job. Yeah. So they didn't know how to write it, and they were very smart in what they did, which was just having people who know what to say come in, and we just said what you're supposed to say and how you're supposed to say it so it would be real. And was it all a, it was not a real auction? Did they find, was it like a place with a lot of horses, and they sort of ran the horses through and had extras pretending to be the people buying, or was it sort of already an ongoing thing? This was uh, this was completely staged, and uh, and in movie productions and television productions, there is a another interesting career set, which is that of a movie wrangler, and movie wranglers have to come up with whatever a film company might need. Whether in this case it was a series of they we probably had I don't know ten plus horses there that are were skilled in the discipline of reining. So we needed 10 reining horses. Okay. It's the movie wrangler's job to come up with 10 reining horses and 10 people riding them. And other sets might need trained cats or a skunk or whatever. And it's the movie wrangler's job to come up with whatever the script requires. So, so we have. Oh no, I was going to ask. So how did they, how did that, how did that wrangler, was the wrangler one who found you? Was the overall production company? How did they find you? Okay, the overall production company was in a bit of a frantic place uh, (laughs) to fill this. And so what they did is they started calling um, some of the breeding farms in the state of Texas. And they happened to call a breeding farm where I've done, where I'm quite good friends with the manager. He Mm -hmm. and I have done a lot of work together for the Texas Thoroughbred Association. And he knows me fairly well. And they called saying, we need somebody who can do this. Do you know anybody? And Bill said, as a matter of fact, I do. (laughs) So then the talent scout called me. And when they found out that, yes, I did know how to do this job, then the casting agency called me from Hollywood. And I did... um, an interview with them, sent them some headshots. Always a good thing for anybody to have headshots. You just never know when you might need to send them off somewhere. So, Brendan, I would recommend you get a headshot. <laughs> what, even if I'm not planning on being a pedigree reader? Even if you're not planning on a film career, you just never know when something like this, because there was a time crunch on it, and I had to send the headshots off right away, and then we did um, a Zoom uh, casting call and I did some pedigree reading for them and they were kind of like, yeah, I guess that's good. We, we don't know what you do. That sounded fine. And so it was, it was a lot of fun. So what was given that you sort of got to write your script? Did you, did you need to, did you write it all by yourself or did they tell you, Hey, these many horses are going to be here. It needs to last this long. How did that work? They, um, they actually gave me less than I needed because I needed to know what discipline the horses were, whether these were race horses or reining horses or cutting horses, because each niche is a little bit different. Okay. And when I asked some of the assistant directors, I, I got a deer in the headlights look going, I don't know. I was like, do you have a pedigree for me to look at? Or do I need to make this up? Where, where are we at with this? And this was my morning on set when I arrived on set and they said, 
why don't you go talk to the Wrangler? I went, yeah, why don't I? And the Wrangler said, they haven't given you the pedigrees? I said, no, they haven't. So he gave me the pedigree and we went through it and I, I made the highlight notes. So I wrote out what I was going to say. And then I talked with the director and basically we were selling a horse. Then the main horse came in. I would do the intro for the main horse and the auctioneer would start. And then we would do the following horse. So that was as much of the sequence as we needed to film. And I think we filmed a whole lot of the following horse too, in case they needed more clips of, a, of the sale happening. Did it go particularly smoothly or were there a lot of weird cuts and stops? It's, uh, I felt that it went smoothly and my, um, familiarity with filming, like, for example, if you've yeah. seen the movie animal house, the horse runs up the steps of the, um, building where the president's office is. Yeah. That scene where you see the horse running up the steps and that only takes about 12 or 15 seconds took four hours to shoot <laughs> and, we're, and you got to watch the painstaking agony of them trying to get it right or get it right. exactly well the, where they wanted what, it. what happened is that particular wrangler said uh in that situation he said i know i can get the horse to go up these steps one time he said i don't know if he will do it a second time you have one take <laughs> So setting everything up exactly the way they wanted and the, the, the bits of the guys skulking around the front of the building, that sort of said they had to get everything exactly right, camera angles right, lighting right, you know, dry runs, getting everybody positioned just right because they knew they only had one shot at it. So in this case, they shot, um, we shot essentially two scenes. There was a dialogue scene between the principal actors and the sale was in the background. So we had to stand there and pretend to sell horses, uh, but we could only pantomime. We weren't allowed to speak because they didn't want that volume interrupting the dialogue that was going on. So we yeah. would pantomime and not speak. So that was that's really hard to get an auctioneer to not speak. Let me tell you, when you hand him the microphone and he doesn't talk, he's like, why are we doing this? Because of the way they're shooting that part of the scene. So we shot that several times. And then they shot the auction scene from all sorts of angles with us as just background, with us as just principals. You know, we were being filmed close up so they could decide what they wanted to use and how they wanted to use it. So we probably shot the actual auction sequence probably six to eight times, I think, so they could get every possible shot they wanted. And then we did some other follow-up shooting as well. They wanted some background action of somebody falling off a horse, but we're peripherally in that scene. So again, we're pantomiming while they're filming that little extra bit that they wanted, things like that. So they, we shoot it and we shoot it until they have every possible angle for every possible circumstance. And so it was a full eight hour day to shoot the scene or the two scenes. Have you been through that kind of experience of shooting for either uh, movies or TV where it's kind of as opposed to what you said, where a lot of times in high school and in college, people have a lot of live theater opportunities and that's mm -hmm. a whole and that's it, it feels very different. There's no opportunity to reset. There's no opportunity to fix. And this is the opposite, the hyper level of we can make a thousand versions of the same thing. And then we go back to the edit bay. We can just splice all this up into the the perfect version was it had you done this kind of filming before i was i was i'm very familiar with it um there's a movie that's not um i would say hollywood's best effort <laughs> uh, a movie called personal best and i actually had a lot of fun at the end of one summer uh just doing extra work on that just being part of the crowd and there was a lot of exposure to shooting and reshooting and reshooting uh, the scenes. It looks quite good on the movie. The movie's not quite good, but the way they shot the scenes worked out well. But yeah, we would sit around maybe for three hours and then they would line us up in the grandstand. It was a track and field movie and they would line us up. Okay, everybody sit in section S. Okay, we're going to shoot this way. Now we need you to be over here. And they would, you know, they would move us around and we would shoot the same scene. Um, different from different angles and they would have to move the crowd around. So it looked like the stands were full. 
So we would shoot the same scene multiple times. Can I ask, I wonder, um, so with, with theater, if even people with very small parts, oftentimes, I guess you can't, you're not there for all the rehearsing and work that goes into it, but you probably have a feel for whether it feels good or not, because you probably have a chance to see it with that. Did you just see after the fact, you're like, I have no idea if it was good or not. And then I watched it and like, eh, it wasn't that great. Or did you, did they give you a script? Did you have, and you looked at it and thought, well, this is probably not going to be great, but it'll be fun to do this. Um, I, I I just did that one for fun. Yeah, okay. I, I, I that was just totally for the fun of it. That was absolutely for the fun of it. And quite frankly, so is this. I mean, when when I do this kind of work, and I've also, since I, I live fairly close to Austin, Texas, I will sometimes answer um, casting ads for, um, for UT film students when they need somebody, how shall I phrase this politely, in my age demographic? <laughs> Um, okay. sometimes they struggle finding that. So I've helped some UT, um, film students, uh, with projects, you know, just for the fun of it and, and the experience, you learn something every time you do this. So just for the experience of doing it. And it's, it's, that's always been interesting and fun. I haven't done that for, for quite a while, but I should, I should look again and see what's, what's out there. Um, oh, and then, oh my goodness. Uh, it, this was another UT film, uh, project. And it was a, a scan. It was the the. It was a short film, and it was some kind of the the plot line was some kind of scam going on in a bingo parlor. Okay. And so I invited my mother and my husband and my son to join me on this. So they said, "Yeah, you can bring some more people." So we were all extras in there. And the big action takes place after the bingo parlor is closing down and everyone's leaving. So. <laughs> My husband and I are supposed to walk out of the bingo parlor together and turn right. That that seems like some pretty simple stage directions. Yeah. 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 I mean, pretty much anybody could do that. So my husband and I, and the door to the bingo parlor was open. So my husband and I walk towards the door and we get jammed in the doorway like Laurel and Hardy <laughs> fighting like animals to try and get out. And the director's yelling, cut, cut. So when two extras mess up a scene, that's not cool. <laughs> so it's almost somehow the normal ability to navigate your personal space disappeared as the two of you were yeah. thinking about being on camera yeah. and you just lined right up shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> we just got, that has never happened to us in the 34 years of our marriage. Um, except that one time we have never gotten jammed in a doorway together. So funny things happen. Can you tell when you're working on stuff? So either when you're working on a play today with with the, the the local community theater folks, or whether you're working on a bit of a TV show or a bit of a movie, can you do you have a feel for whether the thing's going to be good or not, or or not, or not really? It's hard to say, but yeah, you get you start getting the, the feeling. Minimally, you get the feeling that yeah, this is going to work. Okay. This this feel this feels good. We're we're clicking. This this feels good. Um, and the last play I did for our little theater group here was um, a play called Sorted Lives, and it's um, got some. It was somewhat controversial for our small town. So as soon as you get a group of people who think that it shouldn't be done and should be banned, naturally you get sellout crowds. So we. <laughs> We felt an obligation to do our level best with the material. Um, the whole that was the whole reason I even auditioned for that part was whether or not I got the part got a part, I wanted the director to have the widest possible number of choices to put on the best possible performance. That's why I auditioned for it. Overall, were you all sort of in advance? happy that people were complaining about it early on i mean that again there's no such thing as bad publicity kind exactly. of thing and it sounds like in this case it's true yes because we we played to sell out crowds i believe every performance so uh yeah that kind of publicity it, like i said publicity is publicity and it's great do you think so i've noticed some things also in, in smaller areas playing kind of standards that people expect but then also occasionally, maybe once a year, or once every couple of years, picking something they think will be controversial. And then do you think that was the intent here? Or do you think they didn't even think about it? And they're like, wait, people do have a problem with it. 
Uh, I yeah, I think they were a little bit surprised because we are located fairly close to Austin, and and Austin is is a fairly liberal community. Yeah. Um. So I think they were a little bit surprised because they tend to do you know standard you know well known shows and redo them every ten years or so. Right. And this one kind of got thrown into the mix, which I think is important to keep it fresh. You know, so I thought it was a it was a good choice. And it's it's a well-constructed play and um, it brings out a lot of important social issues. So it it was it, it had value and we sold out. So that was a good thing. Rewinding just slightly or moving forward slightly back to the 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 Walker show. Um, mm -hmm. Did you have a chance? Was it mostly sort of um, the the B location team who was doing this, or did, I think you did mention the principals came? Did you know any of the people? And did in that kind of in that particular on that particular day, did you get to meet anybody, or was it really just kind of like I'm there, we're doing our job, and then we're out? Yeah, it's you're there. To, you're there to work. So, okay. <laughs> you know, I was, uh, you know, I was um, at lunchtime. I was in the the tent with the principals. Now, here's an interesting thing. Yeah. At lunchtime, you know, you, you have there's a there's a lunch feeding station for extras. But as I had a speaking role, I was considered cast. Oh. So when I got to the lunch tent, and and one of the things you find on these sets. The sets are swarming with assistant directors, and the jobs of all of these ADs are to make sure that everyone is where they need to be when they need to be there, because it's very expensive if you've got to say, hey, where's the pedigree reader? Where's the auctioneer? You know, we're ready to film, and they're not here. So it's the job of a lot of these assistant directors just to make sure, to be your shepherd, to make sure you're where you need to be when you need to be there. So when it was lunchtime, they took me to the lunch tent, and they said, um, you're cast, so you get to go to the front of the line because a lot of the crew, I, um, they got me to the tent a little bit late. And so they took me immediately to the front of the line and they said, have whatever you want. And there was a huge buffet of, of food for, you know, to choose from. And I said, how much of, of lunch is left? And they said, they haven't called last man yet. And what happens when the last crew member gets their meal, they call last man and filming will resume in half an hour. Okay. And so, yeah, the principal actors were there, but were there to do a job and not interrupt their lunch. So I, you know, it's like, no, we're not there to do that. We could do that later afterwards, but not now. What do your, so what do your family and friends think about, are any of them into this too? Or is this your soul kind of thing? And then if so, what, what do they think about this? It's kind of like this side gig hobby of yours. Um, they, they think it's interesting. And um, uh, for example, that last play yeah. that I was in, somehow I seem to constantly be getting typecast as the aging bar fly. I, I'm not <laughs> quite sure how that happens. And I was, you know, wasn't doing a lot of my cooking back then because I had a lot of rehearsals and I just kept telling my son who was in high school at the time that his glamorous actress mother was busy <laughs> and when after he saw the play he came up to me and he had two words for me and he went yeah glamorous <laughs> So they, they do think it's interesting. And then when I got called to do this part on Walker, you know, I was able to tell my son we were going to be doing something. Oh, I can't. Your glamorous actress mother is is doing a TV show. And so it's just kind of, yeah, that's what she does. All right. Does it um, does your husband ever I mean, does he, does he ever is he ever involved? Is he you mentioned one time when like, hey, they, we can bring other people. So we'll bring you or is it really not his thing? And he doesn't want to come watch or he doesn't want to come involve himself with it. No, he he's he's interested. He has uh, he has little desire. And now he you know, ever since we got jammed in that doorway, he really doubts his acting <laughs> abilities. <laughs> But he he's very supportive and he, he likes to he likes to see what I'm doing. He likes to see the the films that I'm in or um, the plays that I'm in. So he he enjoys it. Um, but he seems to not have any inclination uh, personally to go that direction. Did you ever have an experience either helping behind the scenes with a production or being in a production? Is there one that really stands out to you throughout your life that really kind of 
it just either made an impact on you or you thought this is truly a magical thing. And I would just like to do this a lot. Even if you decided not to do it, I don't want to go make this my full-time job. Is there something that jumps out and says, wow, this is a particular thing we did that just blew me away. I don't know if it, if it was one particular thing or just the overarching, I just really enjoy this. I just really like that. And I think that's more the case with my high school theater productions. You know, I just, I was involved in just about every one of them, whether I was doing costumes, whether I had a speaking part, whether I had a bit part, whether I was painting scenery, I, I liked all of it. Um, and then, like I said, as, as Animal House was a high school experience, essentially, seeing how it's all put together, seeing what goes on behind the scenes. I was right behind the cameras when they filmed the food fight and exactly how all of that was going to look. And what's interesting, it looks a little, I don't know, overplanned when it's being filmed. And then when you watch the movie, it just looks seamless and natural. So it's a little interesting to see what looks stiff and and maybe a little forced look totally right on film. Were you at that time with with the Animal House thing, was it just because of your mom's kind of special place in that production or were the people who ran it just very open to having people, as long as they kept quiet, didn't mess anything up, you can come watch all you want? You know, um, I have found, uh, it was my mom's connection that got me on set, no doubt, okay. but you brought up a really interesting moment to me as a, as a lifelong horse person, I went to the 84 Olympics and watched them. And one day when there was no, they were all held at Santa Anita racetrack. And one day when there was no competition, my friends and I went to Santa Anita just to see what was going on. And yeah. they had set up the backside of the tracks as uh, training rings. And they had, this was for the uh, jumping horses. So we went across the track and across the infield and we just quietly sat and watched. And the American team was about done with their practice. And the Canadian team came in to use that next schooling arena. And we sat quietly and made, you know, pleasantly greeted people and made comments about their lovely horses and what have you. And we just <laughs> yeah. sat there and, and watched. And of course we had no credentials. We had no business being there. <laughs> and a security guard came by and he saw the four of us sitting there and he went to the captain of the Canadian team and went, um, is everything okay here? Everybody who's here is supposed to be here. And the guy looked over to us and said, yeah, everything's fine here. So just hanging out and being polite and being respectful. We got to watch the Canadian Olympic team school before um, they went in for uh, the next day or the day after, I think is when the show jumping um, section of the Olympics started in 84. So, you know, if you're quiet and behave yourself, you can do a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> Did you, was it mostly on, so on the set at that time, was mm -hmm. it mostly, you know, you mentioned you interacted a bit. You were being polite and nice also. Yeah. Uh, did you find there were ways in which you could sort of, by just waiting, were there ways to help out? I mean, can you hold this? Can you do this? Could you put this over here? Or was Yeah, it there, 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 is de there was definitely a little bit of that. And um, anybody who wants to do this, um, I was at another, I was at a uh, film group. There was a, a thing put on by a, a group of independent filmmakers if you want to get into period piece films and this was westerns okay um they had they invited a particular group of people to this seminar also to get <coughs> names of possible extras mm -hmm. and this was uh you had to show your horsemanship skills you had to do things um and talking about it and i was talking with um another girl there and she was saying that, you know, you can, if you start, if you want to do this, if you want to get involved with movies, there are so many ways to do it and you can work yourself into it as far as you want to. It's not as hard as you think. You just have to have the want to, and you have to have the time. You have to have the time to devote. Yes, I can just be a gopher, an unpaid gopher on set and I'll do this. If you have the time to do it, you can actually get involved in a lot of productions. Why did you, I mean, maybe you, maybe somebody finally explicitly told you that after the fact in that situation, but why did you decide, 
we see, we all know people from high school or college who are really into the arts and some of them are fairly obsessive about it. It is the thing they want to do and they obsessively go for it. And as we know, the arts are very competitive. So if you want to be the one everyone's looking at, be the greatest actor or the greatest guitarist or the greatest singer or the greatest director, that is very competitive. What about the arts was the thing that made it that that was not going to be the thing you were going to focus on much more? I would really, I would really have to say exactly that. It is, it is hard. It can be hard to make a living. Now you can choose other directions, you know, tech, technical staff, or in yeah. the case that we've already discussed, movie wranglers, those kinds of things. You can get very involved that way and work continually. Um, the hair and makeup people that I was working with on the Walker set, they are always busy. So, you know, there are, like I said, there's a variety of ways if you want to. I mean, if you have the goal of acting, that's a much harder way to make a living. But if you want it, you can find a way. It's not easy, but you can find a way. Were the animals just more of a pull than being out in front of people in an audience? I think so, yes. I, I mean, I am, on, I am happiest on a horse. And so that's, <laughs> that's, that's what's really uh, important to me. And of course, I've always loved horse racing. I've always followed it um, and ended up spending about a two-year chunk of time uh, galloping racehorses and training them. And that was, that was quite a thing. So that is the most fun you can ever have, let me tell you. <laughs> If you, if that's the most fun being on a horse, was there also a time when you thought maybe I want to do dressage, maybe I want to do racing, maybe I want to work with horses all the time and spend as much time as possible on a horse? Yes. And I did that for about four years and a couple of concussions later and a few dislocations <laughs> later, I went, you know, there's got to be another way. I think I don't want to be in the horse world as a professional rider. Okay. I mean, I did it for, for years, um, galloping horses, showing horses, training horses, starting horses. And I went, you know what? I think I'll be happier if I do this for my own personal fun. So at about that same time, a friend of mine, um, opened a, an ambulatory equine practice uh -huh. and he did not need somebody full-time, but he needed somebody part-time. So I didn't need a full-time job as I was still riding and training horses, but an additional source of part-time income worked for me just fine. And so that was my first job in veterinary medicine is riding shotgun for an equine vet. And we would, we saw all kinds of things. We also saw cattle. We saw all kinds of large animal work uh, down in the Rio Grande Valley. So that's what we did is so that and that was my introduction to working in veterinary medicine. And I think I worked for him for some two years, I think. Was that transition? So um, were the horses you were working with and the kind of work you're doing, not just the riding of it, but are the horses also a little the ones you're working with a little more high strung, a little more intense. And so the stuff is just riskier. Whereas when you sort of just went with this ambulatory practice and you're kind of just seeing horses and cattle and <clears throat> were was the stress level lower, I guess what I'm asking, because there was, it seemed less, less risk from the animals, less intensity in the situation. As, as a rule, I would say the answer to that is yes, because when you're galloping racehorses for a living, um, they, you know, that's, that's fair. And that's where I've had my most serious injuries, um, is galloping racehorses because you and are what is, going... would, would you tell me what, what in your case, what were you actually doing when you say galloping racehorses? What were the sorts of things you were doing? Okay. So when you gallop a racehorse, um, racehorses have uh, morning workouts where they okay. get fit and ready to run and then they get ridden in races and those jobs, uh, while jockeys will also work as exercise riders, uh, galloping racehorses is the, that's what exercise riders do. Um, you know, we're uh, generally uh, some are some of us are jockey sized. I'm I'm not at the time. I, I if you want to get fit and thin, boy, gallop racehorses. That'll take the weight right <laughs> off you. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. It's physically it's hard hard work. Um, but uh, there's a whole uh, a lot more exercise riders than there are jockeys. I'll, I'll put it that way. 
So that's what I did. I would gallop them for their fitness um, in the mornings. And then um, I did hold a trainer's license for a while. And then I would select jockeys to ride them in the races. But what? Well, that's that's interesting. You pick it where there are particular jockeys, particular horse. How would you do? How would you pick? That's interesting. I didn't think about. I thought maybe whoever owns the horse would be the one I pick. Him, I pick. There, who? there is discussion that way, and of course, um, as in any sport, if you're on a hot streak, you're on a hot streak. So those jockeys <laughs> are the ones you're looking for, where everything just seems to be clicking for them, just like in any sporting event, you know golf, tennis, somebody's on a hot streak, they're on a hot streak, and they seem to be winning everything. And it's just no different at all with jockeys. If they're on a hot streak, things are going good, that's kind of who you want. See if you can get them. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but jockeys have agents. And so you need to talk to the jockey's agent to see if you can get so-and-so. Or maybe, you know, you want to try a different, you know, some horses will go better for different riding styles. So you may right. have to go through a couple of different riders till you find the one that clicks the best with that, with that horse. People who have their own horses and they get really close to the horses, they develop that same relationship we have with our cats and dogs where that is your animal and you are its person. Yes. With these situations, were there ever, how common was it for a jockey to get so wetted up with a horse that like that jockey rides that horse case closed? Um, that, that tends to be what you want to have happen. You want to have them know each other and know, okay, this is, you know, that is the best of all scenarios, but you can never be sure that that's what you're going to get yeah. due to jockey injury. You know, if all of a sudden, and that's what happened um, with Seabiscuit, his regular rider got badly injured and was unavailable to ride him in the great match race against War Admiral. So they had to get another jockey, even, you know, so you, you always have to be prepared for that. That horse should be prepared to work for someone else as well. Naturally, you want that, that, that good bond and that good situation. Um, and when I train horses, I, I like to think of myself as the translator. My job is to translate the human world to the horse in a way that he can understand it. And it was, it was funny. A, a horse that I had started myself had him at the track here in, in Texas. And he was being led to the saddling paddock for only his second race. And he started to get overexcited and, and worried. And I was walking with him and I just spoke to him and I said, Buzz, Buzz, it's okay. And he turned his head and the guy, the groom leading the horse to the saddling paddock goes, he really knows you. I'm like, yeah, he knows I'm here. And if I'm here, he knows all is well. And it all was well. He won that night. Are there, again, a veterinarian doesn't need to be friends with all the horses and the people who run facilities don't need to be friends with all the horses. You know, you kind of gave an indication that in the ideal world, a jockey really bonds with a horse. Are there certain jockeys who they just do things a certain way so that even if they don't know the horse, they can they can sort of bend the horse to their will in a very short period of time, whether that's through kind of you know, intense energy they're forcing on the horse or whether they just have certain tricks they use and every horse figures out what they needed to do pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, there are, there are riders who have that talent where they can just get on a horse and work with it and figure it out. They yeah. just can, they, they can, they, they have this way of doing it. And that is true in the show ring. They're, they're called catch riders in the show ring where if, if for whatever reason the person who was going to ride the horse becomes suddenly unavailable, you got to grab somebody who's never ridden it before and have them take it into the show ring, and they can, they can do that. And jockeys have to be prepared to learn a horse just in that warm-up time. Jeez. Yeah, and they uh, some of them are quite gifted at it, and figure out a way. Yeah. What are so since we, you know, we talked about horses a little bit, maybe the next, if you look ahead to the next 10 years, are there things you want to do either in the horse world and in the acting world that as you think about, or are, or are these kind of things that are a little more amorphous than the career career has solid <laughs> goals, but in acting and horse stuff, look, I'm just volunteering. I'm having fun. Or do you kind of have like a 10 year plan? Like I'd kind of like to do this in acting. I'd kind of like to do this with horses. I, I don't have a, 
I always want to, uh, yeah, with the horses, um, I do raise a couple of thoroughbreds. Okay. Um, so naturally, I want to win the Kentucky Derby. We haven't seen that happen yet. But, you know, you, <laughs> you've got to have goals. Even if you fall short of them, at least if you have a goal, you know where you're going. I have a, a promising two-year-old in training right now. So we'll see where that goes. Oh, and here's another fun thing about horse racing. Yeah. I also am in a racing club. And a racing club for a, for a fee you buy in this particular club. You, I am now the proud owner of 140th of three racehorses. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and two of them are going to be running on Sunday. And one is going to be running in a, a rather high dollar stakes race. Um, I think the total purse on that race is going to be $150,000, and I own 140th of the favorite. Is there just not, are are some horses get bought by millionaires who buy a bunch of horses, and mm-hmm. other horses, they, somebody is raising the horse, but they can't find someone to buy the whole horse? What? How does, a, how does this club show up? Okay, so what a racing club does is it allows people to enjoy owning a racehorse okay. without all the without all the burden of the expenses. Yeah. So a club gets put together, and the way this one worked is we put the club together first. I think there's still a few slots left in the club, and you pay the money. In this case, it was five thousand dollars to own one fortieth of three horses. And so the club gets put together, and then we went to the Texas two-year-old in training sale. So these horses are already training and galloping on the track and are already beginning to show some of their ability. Mm-hmm. And the club manager decides which horses are going to be purchased, and we purchased three. And then the club manager puts them with trainers. So you can enjoy owning a racehorse without having to know what trainer to send it to or know what should happen to it, uh, that all gets taken care of for you. So you just get to enjoy watching the horses run. And some years ago, a Kentucky Derby winner named Funnyside was owned by a racing club. And the only vehicle large enough that everyone could ride together to Churchill Downs that they could find to rent was a school bus. So all these people (laughs) piled into a school bus and went to Churchill Downs and their horse won. I am, I'm curious because you kind of said, Oh, I, you know, I'm raising some horses and, you know, we'll get to the Kentucky Derby. So you having been in horse racing for a long time, I'm curious if uh, it feels like it's really just a money. I mean, there, there's an exception, but in most cases, really just a money game. Some people have a lot of money to get the right, bred horse from the right lines and then test out enough to know which one looks the most promising. And they spend a ton of money on medical and training and all the things necessary. And that's why that horse is a winner or do underdog horses that don't come from money pop up in the upper echelons. They do. And that's what, that's what keeps all of us addicted to the game because (laughs) they do. It's where, for example, the horse um, that won the Kentucky Derby this year, Rich Strike, he was purchased for, which, I mean, it's a lot of money, $30,000, but he went on to win millions. So it happens just often enough that all of us have hope. (laughs) (laughs) That we all have hope. So... Yeah, it happens just often enough. And the um, Triple Crown winner, Seattle Slough, was purchased for $12,000. Again, a lot of money, not an inconsiderable sum, but the dream came true. So just often enough that you go, yeah, this could happen to me too. (laughs) But if those horses are bought, they happen to be at the market at some time and they're bought cheap, Mm -hmm. is the path to those high of the highest level races is the path extremely expensive or are you saying all along the way you there's a chance that you could have a modest purchase on a horse and then have a modest level of training and time and everything mm-hmm. and you it that horse just outperforms because that horse is just a great horse yes okay exactly you you stumble upon the diamond in the pile of semi-precious stones and if you get the diamond that you know it, it will, the cream will rise to the top. It, you know, 
and it will have there are so many good trainers and good jockeys who don't ever get their hands on the diamond yeah and if they do it happens for them because they're good trainers and they're good riders but that to get a hold of the rare athlete that's that's the great hope for all of us is we get a, we get a hold of that rare wonderful athlete either we bred them or we bought them somehow they landed in our lap and it made the opportunity for all of us i know i know several good trainers they're just wonderful trainers and then it happened and the diamond landed in their lap and they got to ride the glorious ride of of the big time so it, it, I mean, it does sound a little bit, I feel like uh, major sports with just people and you're not talking about animals, but NBA, NFL, major league, maybe, maybe major league baseball has a, a stronger kind of farm league sort of thing where people can kind of come up the diamonds in the rough and then they can yeah. come up and perform at the highest level. But I feel like some of those things you cannot in those situations until you cannot play in those situations unless you're fully, fully vetted. Are these things, how does someone get through the lines of racing to get to the Kentucky Derby? Is it simply you show up in such and such a place and you pay your entry? And if you do well enough, boom, you're into the next level. Or is there vetting where some people can there's, never there, seem to get the horse in? There's 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 um, races that earn you points towards okay. being able to get into the Derby. So if you have a horse that starts showing it's talented then you start going, well, let's point him to some of the qualifying races and see how we do. That's how you go down the road. Okay. And maybe, and this doesn't have anything to do with acting, but since we're on horses, I am curious from your perspective, you know, uh, growing up with a love for horses and a love of animals and then being involved in racing, there is a lot of sort of growing ambivalence about horse racing. And so how ambivalent about the future of horse racing are you? Or do you really think it's important. We need to do it. Cause I know there's a lot of thinking about, look, these are horses that are, they can be very fragile. We're kind of breed these horses for a, a difficult transitory job and, and they, they get injured. And then, you know, there's a terrible outcome, which is euthanasia. Uh, how do you look at horse rate? Do you think 10 years it'll be there? Do you, and do you really want it to be there? How do you feel about it? Those are excellent questions. And <laughs> I am extremely active in the second career of racehorses. I feel if we are going to breed these horses, we need to be responsible for them for their entire lives. Yeah. So to that end, I have created an event here in Texas and I'm gonna be running one on uh, this coming Friday morning. It's called the Roses to Ribbons Old Fashioned Horse Fair. And what happens there is that horses who are done with their racing career, Perhaps they didn't show any talent for racing. You know, they've raced two or three times and have run at the back of the pack every time. They're just not particularly fast. Or they're also what's called um, out of conditions where they can win. Each each race might be for two-year-olds who've never won a race. Okay. okay? Or it might be three-year-olds that have never won two races. Something like that. These are called the conditions. And a lot of horses can win what they call a maiden where they've never won, a non-two where they've only won once before, a non-three, and maybe even they might even run a non-four. But then there may not be many other races that horse can win, so it's no longer economically realistic to keep racing it. There's no nothing wrong with the horse. Right. It's just not going to be able to earn enough money to keep it in racing. So what I do is I put together this event and I have all the horses at the track who are ready to look for a second career brought up to the saddling paddock. And then through social media, I advertise it saying, hey, if you're looking for a project horse, because these horses do need to be retrained, yeah, this is an opportunity for you to look. And so, because when you go to buy a horse, if you're a regular amateur rider, you might see an ad for a horse online and you go drive an hour or two and you go look at one horse and that's not what you're looking for and you drive an hour or two home. (laughs) This way, you can look at 15 or 20 horses in one place at one time. And so what they do is all the trainers bring the horses up and then all the people who are looking for a prospect horse come to the track and it's a giant meet and greet. And some people will buy the horses then and there. 
Other people may, will make arrangements maybe to have a veterinarian come and check to see if he's got any, any issues. Um, but through this program, I'm really proud to say I'm expecting by the time we're done on Friday, we, um, over the years that we've been running it, we've rehomed somewhere in the neighborhood of 175 racehorses into new careers. Of, of the horses that, um, so they're sort of trained to, they thought they were going to race and they're trained mm -hmm. to race and they do race. Mm -hmm. Do any, from your impression being around these horses, are these horses trained to be racers or at some point do they become racers where, you know, emotional, they're a little disappointed and a little bored when they don't get to run around anymore? Well, it depends on what career you, they want after okay. they're done racing. And I have, I've taken several off the track horses. I'm for that matter, I make it a point of pride. That's the only thing I will take into the show ring is an off the track thoroughbred. That is, that is my deal. You're like the uh, version, right? You're the adver of the, you're, it's the version of adopt don't shop. Yeah. Yeah. So we, <laughs> this is, you know, this, it's, I mean, and these horses are wonderful. I had one horse that came off the track and all he really excelled at once he was off the track and you just wouldn't think it of him because he was on the nervous and edgy side. He was just a wonderful trail horse <laughs> and sure footed as anything. It's quite rocky in our area. Yeah. And that, that horse would just go chip, 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 right down the trail. Just not ever put a foot down, no matter how the footing was. He was just the best little trail horse you'd ever want to sit on. And, Another horse that we took off the track, she um, was so big that she didn't fit in the starting gates. And so her races were disappointing because she simply did not fit into the starting <laughs> gates. And so she'd have to kind of unwind and, and uncurl to get out. And so by then the rest of the pack was, was well gone. And she was, she was a wonderfully bred mare. And we brought her home and she was going to be my husband's trail horse. And she took to that right away. She loved it. And then we left town um, for a couple of weeks and we sent the horse off to my trainer who does three-day eventing. Yeah. And said, just look after him because we were going to be out of town for several weeks. We were, we were going to England to look at actually their program for um, retraining of racehorses. So we left the mare with my three-day event trainer. And when we came back two and a half weeks later, he goes, I really like this horse. <laughs> And he pretty much kept her, and so we made a deal that we would we would split her 50-50, and we would pay for her food and her shoes, and he would do all the training at no charge. And this was a couple of years ago, and I just got noticed that she has qualified for um, national championships at her level of competition. So she was a racehorse. She raced nine times. Um, best she ever finished, I think, was fourth but her ability to run and jump cross country is unparalleled. So you just kind of never know that you, they might actually find out they like the new job even better than the old job. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a cliche vision. I think people have of racehorses when they retire. Well, these horses are just going to want to do nothing. And I think some horses get old and in fact do want to do just like people or cats and some cats and dogs don't want to do anything. Other dogs are hungry hungry for activity and they're hungry for, you know, playing with the people and doing the things with the people. So it reminds me very much of the working dog situation where mm -hmm. some of mm -hmm. them just want to retire and do nothing. And other ones want to keep active all the way until they're all done. Yeah. And, and the, my favorite story from a roses to ribbons was, um, you're a couple of years ago, I was running it at Lone Star Park in Dallas. And that's where the one, um, on this coming Friday is going to be. Um, and a trainer from Louisiana called me and he said that he had three horses that he wanted to bring. And one of them, he said, was going to be a perfect kid's horse. And that's where he wanted this horse to go. He said, I could take him home and turn him out in the pasture and he could live the rest of his life there. This was a 10 year old horse that had been racing for eight years. Okay. And I thought to myself, really, this horse has been racing for eight years and you think it's going to be a perfect kid's horse. I'm like, well, <laughs> whatever. So anyway, he brought the horse to the Roses to Ribbon sale. The horse's name was, I believe, Rare Flyer. And the last time I saw Rare Flyer, he was being dragged around the saddling paddock by three excited little girls pulling on his lead rope. 
and just that horse was just following them around wherever they wanted him to go. And about a year later, I got a photo from the woman who bought him. She wanted, she was looking for some horses to add to her school horse string. And it was a picture of rare flyer jumping over about a three foot fence and probably a 12 year old girl on his back. And that horse, she said, I would take 10 more just like him. He's perfect. And what the trainer's goal was for the horse, he goes, I, he said, I could take him home and just turn him out, but I want him to be someplace where he's going to be loved on and brushed and groomed and fussed over. And that's exactly the future that that horse got. That horse just, I mean, he must have seen it around a kid or two and thought, holy moly, that horse really likes little girls. You know, and 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 the horse has what what in, in the horse business what we call a good brain that he's accepting of what happens, yeah. and just a wonderful wonderful horse. So you can never quite guess you, just because you know you'd think a horse that had been racing for eight years would be utterly unsuitable for that job, and that's not the case. Or you would think that a horse used to galloping on a groomed racetrack wouldn't like scrambling over the rocks on a tr on a rocky trail, and yet they say, hey, yeah, I'll do this job. I like it. Okay, so I want to ask you this episode, what is the name of the show you were on and is it already aired and how we find it? Okay, the show that I was on is is called Walker. It's on HBO Plus. It might also be on Hulu, I'm not sure. And to my knowledge, it has not yet aired, so I'm not sure where, you know, the one day of filming that I did for it, where that where that episode falls. Okay. But I, it's it, to my understanding, it has not yet aired. I'm thinking next month it might be airing because uh, we shot back in April and we're looking at an August filming. I mean, in August, he said a couple of months. So I was guessing August. So coming up soon. So, okay. And we'll definitely look. So through the synopses, if, if I don't watch the show all the time right now, I'll wait for look. the one that definitely has an auction in it. Yes. At the horse auction. <laughs> And you could tell the bad guy he was wearing a black hat. Very clear who the bad guy was. Very on the nose. Yeah, oh yeah. They 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 didn't miss a trick there. It's like, oh, he must be the bad guy. And he seemed to have a lot of money to spend on the horses. So we can only assume he's very bad. 